Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter, Gabe Derrick. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about two robots seeking to become human. It's Bicentennial Man versus AI Artificial Intelligence. Let the robot wars begin. So let's kick off this episode, as we always do, with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So on the 17th of December, 1999, Bicentennial Man was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. An android endeavours to become human as he gradually acquires emotions. Gabe, did you originally catch Bicentennial Man when it was first released at the cinema and walk us through that experience? No. (laughs) No, I didn't. Did you? I mean, I think I saw the trailer or a poster for this and thought, no, thank you. Yeah, 100%. This was like a turd of my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Robot turd. Exactly. So this came out around Christmas time, 1999 in Australia, and I recall the poster at the cinemas, and it had a goofy-looking metallic version of Robin Williams. I wasn't interested in that at all. And I just thought, this isn't the film for me. It just didn't seem to be a particularly sophisticated version of telling the android seeking humanity story. And I think at that stage, too, we'd had a bad run of films by the late Robin Williams, who, at his best in cinema history, was one of the best. But his desire to seek out some of those saccharine-type Hollywood films is unfortunately a bit of a blip on his IMDb filmography. And so, Are you saying you're not a fan of uh, Flubber or Patch Adams? You didn't also flock equally to those? Yeah, no, I don't have the Blu-rays of those at all. So I caught Bicentennial Man specifically recently just for this pod. Me too. And um, it was pretty unmemorable, I think. As a first viewing experience, I don't really think there'll be a second. Yeah, I can't see there being a 20-year sequel to this film at all. It's funny, isn't it? Like, you have these films in your filmic history that you might have seen at the VHS, the video store, or on your streaming service, and it kind of gets into your Netflix list to watch later. That's sort of the modern equivalent of the video store. And you never get round to seeing them, but you always just see that iconic poster or DVD cover or on-screen image in the background. And it was so funny to actually finally watch this film, which had haunted me, because Back to my days working in the cinemas around that era, I recall going to work every day and just having that poster of Robin Williams look down at me in a creepy way, just like the Mona Lisa. Like the eyes followed you. 100%. As I rode my bike past, there was this goofy-looking, particularly fake-looking silver robot, which has a vague resemblance to Robin Williams, just looking down at me from the exterior wall of the cinema complex And it freaked me out and it haunted me for the entire duration of the four weeks that was playing in cinemas. And looking back on it, I'm actually surprised it lasted four weeks. What a horrible month that must have been in 1999. Worst summer ever. (laughs) Okay, let's jump to AI, artificial intelligence. So later on, around 
29th of June 2001. And I must say, these films do sit as twin movies, but I am surprised in retrospect that they came out as far apart as they did. I think in Australia they came out at a similar time, which is why in my subconscious I kind of linked them much more closely together. But I think in the States they came out about a year and a half apart. Still counts. Still counts. Still, still counts. counts as a twin movie. Exactly. All right. All right. So, cool your jets. On the 29th of June, 2001, AI was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A highly advanced robotic boy longs to become real so that he can regain the love of his human mother. Gabe, walk me through it. AI. I definitely didn't see this at the movies, or I'm very sure I didn't because I have no real memory of seeing it at the movies. I'm usually pretty good at remembering movies I saw at the movies in sort of the early 2000s. But I must have seen bits and pieces of it over and over on TV or on DVD, I guess. Although I just, I don't think I'd actually ever sat down and watched the whole thing from beginning to end, which is very odd because, you know, it's Spielberg based on the, the Kubrick backstory. And so, I actually sat down and watched this for the first time for this, though there was so many scenes that I was like, I've seen this not only before, but a number of times. So, it's sort of a patchwork viewing previous to this full viewing. Yeah, I'm really surprised to hear that. I would have assumed being a sci-fi, B Spielberg, C Kubrick connection, you would have been lining up on day one to see this at the cinema. So, I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess whatever came out the same week of it in, in the year of 2001, it must have just, threw, like, I don't know, maybe it was Patrick Swayze in Black Dog. And I was like, that's the movie I've got to see. Yeah, it was clearly that or The Fast and the Furious because you were on board the Fast and oh, Furious yeah. train. The fate of that train oh, yeah. early on. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but like, yeah, so I watched this only recently. What about you? So, I saw this for the first time in the middle of Sydney in one of the multiplexes. And look, I was drawn to the backstory. The idea of Spielberg, you know, taking this unachieved final work of Kubrick's was just, yeah, chumming the waters and I was the shark. And I was in like Flynn and really keen to see it. So, I recall being quite mesmerised at the time, actually. I felt that the combination of music and the visuals was like a haunting dream. And I was in one of those cinemas that had a fantastic screen, but it was pretty dilapidated as well. So, you kind of felt like you were experiencing that combination of analogue and digital at once. And this film is of that era where there's great CG in it, it's a lot of fantastic practical sets and it's shot on film. So, it's a really great mesh of the old and the new. And even the story itself is a meshing of the old and the new. So, this film really stuck with me then and I found it really haunting. Unlike any other Spielberg film, except perhaps a recent twin movie episode, which is Saving Private Ryan. So, I really enjoyed it. And I hadn't revisited it, I think, in about 15, 20 years. So, yeah, it was interesting to go back and watch this film, given that at the time it was maligned by some critics as, you know, Spielberg sort of rounding the corners off the sharp edges of Kubrick's work. But going back and watching it now, I thought it was great and really sort of stood the test of time. So, yeah, we'll get into the review, but I really enjoyed it then, and I enjoyed it on the rewatch. It sort of came at an underrated period of Spielberg's 
career. I think at the time people maybe thought he was in a bit of a slump. But in retrospect, the movies he made kind of in the early 2000s were actually all, all really good. And particularly the sci-fi movies he made then, AI, Minority Report, War of the Worlds, they've actually all aged really well. But I think at the time people were like, these are all lesser Spielberg or something. So it sort of came at an interesting time in his career. See, well, I would agree to disagree on that one. I don't think people thought he was in a slump because he had had Saving Private Ryan in a 98. And then he had what after that? He made this after that. So okay. this was the movie he made after Private Ryan. And I guess people, maybe it felt like, you know, you hit the giddy heights of Private Ryan, Oscars and so on. The only way down from there is sort of down. But also, you know, people think, oh, he made Catch Me If You Can around the same time. And and I think that film has aged incredibly well and is really good. But, you know, maybe people thought that was sort of fluffy in comparison as well. Like this is a sort of robot fairy tale. and Yeah, but in the order of events, though, he did go from Jurassic Park 93, Schindler's List 93. Now, he had Lost World, which wasn't a home run, but still did very well, 97. Amistad sort of bottomed out at 97. Saving Private Ryan was a peak at 98. Then he does AI in 2001, Minority Report in 2002, Catch Me If You Can in 2002. I think the slump comes around here. He does The Terminal in 2004, War of the Worlds in 2005, Munich I enjoyed, but was a box office slump in 2005. And then he does Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008. And then he has Tintin in 2011. So, And then War Horse 2011. The only one of those movies that's arguably bad is, yeah, I'm not going to say The Terminal. It's not bad, you know, like, come on. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull. I mean, that's, I don't know, yeah. And that was six years after AI. So, yeah, look, I'd say his slump came after AI and after... Minority Report. In fact, Minority Report, I think, is a fantastic film. Oh, it's stood great. up really, really, really well. Yeah. Look, if anything, I'm saying just I think at the time people – I think these movies at the time people didn't think they were as good as they are now as fondly remembered or critically appraised 17 years later. Yeah, fair enough. So weird to think that Minority Report's 17 years old. I know. AI is 18 years old. Where did the time go? Time flew. Well, speaking of time, anyway. let's get into the uh, backstory <laughs> of these two films with that All really right. hard segue just there. <laughs> that was good. It was smooth. So, let's start with Bicentennial Man. Now, there wasn't much to find on this film. I did some internet Googling, some Sherlocking, and that probably reflects, I guess, the lack of audience and critical appreciation for this film, and I would argue rightly so. But also, it isn't a cult classic either. This film kind of came and went so, there wasn't much to sort of identify as the inspiration. I think it's fair to say that perhaps this film is based on the general themes of Pinocchio. All robot movies based on the general, I guess so. All of these, I want to be a human. I want to be a real boy. I mean, I haven't read the Isaac Asimov story this is based on. Have you? No, I haven't. And I think, though, from what I've read, this sticks more closely to that source material then another Asimov adaptation, which is iRobot by Alex Proyas. Right. So, what they share in common is the three rules of robotics, and that's about it. Yeah. Right. I can't imagine Isaac Asimov's story is so kind of saccharine, but I don't know. I haven't read it, so. 
Well, I'll give you the three rules of robotics, which you could say might even apply to the setup of artificial intelligence as well. So Asimov's three laws of robotics are, and these actually govern all of the robots in his stories. So the first law, a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come into harm. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human being, except when such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law is that a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first and second laws. It's a bit confusing. Yeah, it's too confusing for me. So robots basically just have to be sort of subservient most of the time. Exactly. So let's jump to AI. Now, that one has a much more interesting backstory. Let's try something different here. Tell me, what do you recall as the popular culture interpretation as to the origins of AI in regards to Kubrick's original involvement? Yeah, right. Now, I haven't looked this up, so this is just what I remember. Was it that this was a movie that Kubrick always had planned or dreamed to make, sort of like his Napoleon or whatever, but the technology didn't exist for him to be able to sort of realise his dream? And... On his deathbed, he summoned Spielberg and said, earn it. No, that can't be right. It was something to that effect, wasn't it? Yeah, your delivery of earn it just sounds like a line from a Kevin Costner film. <laughs> it's a line from a Spielberg movie, mate. Come uh, on. Which one? Saving Private Ryan. We talked oh, about it Oh, of course. Week. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's sorry. Anyway, but something to that effect that Spielberg picked up the mantle after Stanley Kubrick had passed away and made- well, actually, Spielberg has a writing credit on this. He wrote it, so he must have, I don't know, something to that effect. He, he then wrote the movie and made it him, his own. I don't know. That's Am I right? pretty much Am I it. even close? That's pretty much it. Okay. So Kubrick began a development of an adaptation of a novel called Super Toys Last All Summer Long in the late 1970s, and he actually hired the story's author, Brian Aldiss, to write the film treatment. But it was actually in 1985 that Kubrick asked Spielberg to direct the film with Kubrick producing. That's the part I didn't... Oh, so Kubrick, he didn't want to make it himself. Well, that's a bit unclear because he started his interest in in the late 70s, but for whatever reason, he thought that Spielberg may have been a better person to do it. And so he asked him to do it, and then Warner Brothers agreed to co-finance AI and cover the costs accordingly. But then it laboured in development hell, and that's pretty common with most of Kubrick's films, and eventually Aldous, who wrote the original story, was fired by Kubrick over the classic creative differences. So they brought on someone else and someone else, and no one was doing it, so the film was just labouring. And so then what happened is Kubrick handed the third writer the book, The Adventures of Pinocchio, for inspiration, and called AI his robotic version of Pinocchio. So this particular writer, Ian Watson, does another treatment as well. So we're now in 1991. And then they kind of keep pushing it through the studio. And then Spielberg's Jurassic Park comes out with this innovative computer-generated imagery, CGI. And based on that, that then kickstarts into operation in November 93. Because now they thought they had both the right story and the technology to make it happen. But then Kubrick still remained dissatisfied. <laughs> So we're now oh, in right. 1994. 
They've brought on concept artists. They've tried doing different visual effects and so on. There's even um, some of the unproduced work for AI that can be seen on the DVD, the work of director Chris Cunningham. For our, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, for our listeners, Gabe, just explain to them who Chris Cunningham is. In the early, I guess, late 90s and early 2000s, every film school student had a couple of uh, DVDs. And they were the music video, the complete music video works of Chris Cunningham and Spike Jonze. They were sort of, uh, Chris Cunningham made these really great, he made this Bjork music video with like a robot assembling Bjork and these sort of really cool visionary film clips. Interestingly, did he ever end up going on to make any films? I don't know. Chris Cunningham. I don't know. Yeah, he made these really great sort of robotic theme-based music videos. And, oh, man, imagine uh, Chris Cunningham's AI. That would have been something too, I suppose. Well, it's no surprise. He's been attached to Neuromancer, the William Gibson right, okay, cyberpunk okay. novel forever. But basically, a thousand different directors have been attached to that. So, yeah, he was the inspirational guy. And a lot of his imagery was quite robotic. He's only 49 now, yeah. Chris Cunningham. Like, oh. he was doing this stuff, like, in his mid-20s. So- he was precocious. His Aphex Twin music videos are sort of incredibly iconic as well. He's in the spirit, actually, of Brian Glazer and uh, David Fincher, yeah, totally. both doing really fascinating music videos. And the other guy who's in the same sort of world is the one that wrote, did that film with the uh, second Spider-Man called Never Let Me Go or something. Oh, yeah. What's his name? The guy who did a one-hour photo with Robin Williams to bring it full circle. Oh, yeah. One of, totally, totally. Mark Romanek. Exactly. Big beard, Taylor Swift yeah. music video, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting about this AI stuff then, I guess, is Spielberg has the writing credit on this. So, he must have turfed most of everything that came before this. So, what happens is we get right. to 1995 and this is still labouring away. Nothing is really happening. And then Eyes Wide Shut starts happening. So, everything's put on hold. Then, of course, Kubrick dies in the post-production of Eyes Wide Shut around late 99. And so then at this stage, the producers approach Spielberg again to take it over. So, you know, we're now 14 years after the first occasion when Spielberg was first approached. So he remained pretty close to Ian Watson's treatment. He removed various sex scenes with Gigolo Joe, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you've got this character who's a gigolo, but it's pretty chaste in that regard. But the earlier version was perhaps closer to Eyes Wide Shut in relation to its yeah, depictions right. of sex. Okay. But it's chased in its, like, on-screen depiction of it, but there is some dark ideas around- 100%, yeah. The future of sex robots in this. And it's interesting because Spielberg has only a few writing credits, and particularly actual writing written by credits as opposed to a story by credits. Yeah, like this was his first Goonies solo screenplay credit since Close Encounters of the Third Kind back in 77. Yeah, all of his written, all of the sci-fi movies he wrote actually are quite dark. The end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Richard Dreyfus abandons his family to go with the with the aliens. And, and in this, you know, there's some really kind of dark ideas around the treatment of humans and robots and robot sexuality and people, I think, you know, have a view of Spielberg as kind of saccharine or whatever, but when you let him go on his own, the little boy wonder has some bleak ideas. It's funny you should mention that because when AI came out, it was criticised by many reviewers who very, quote, knowingly, unknowingly commented that the dark parts, which they assume were Kubrick, were the best parts of the film, and the sweet-natured parts, they just assumed were authored by Spielberg. 
but it actually transpires that the final 20 minutes, which is the sweet-natured part where the robotic character actually has a chance to kind of relive his fantasies, which we'll get to in more detail in the review, that apparently is beat for beat what Stanley Kubrick wrote and was faithfully filmed by Spielberg without any any schmaltz at all. So I think Spielberg okay. felt pretty frustrated that when there was a dark edge to the film, which he contributed to as both director and the solo screenwriter, that was assigned as an achievement to, at this stage, Ted Kubrick. Yeah, right. I'll be interested to talk about that bit because I don't think that's a happy ending whatsoever. No, nor do I. So no, the no. idea that even that bit is like a positive or a, as we said, saccharine Spielberg I didn't read it that way at all. I think it's a really dark ending. So, you know, there you go. All right. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, let's start then by kicking it off with a review of the first film that was released, Bicentennial Man. So, let's get our magnifying glasses and our punching gloves and our knives and start with that. So, Gabe, what are your thoughts on Bicentennial Man? It was exactly what I expected. And kind of what you'd expect from a Chris Columbus movie made in 1999, kind of what you'd expect from the those bad Robin Williams or movies that, I don't know, appeal to Robin Williams' worse sensibilities. I don't know. It's just kind of stupid all the way through, which is a really reductive, terrible way to review a movie. Like if, if, if someone said something that I worked on was stupid all the way through, I'd be pissed off at them. So I'm really sorry. Chris Columbus and Isaac Asimov and everyone involved in this. I don't know, man. Was there anything you liked about it? My pause probably suggests I'm searching for something. Look, I like some of the ideas. I feel it's a poor execution of a good idea. Right. What's the idea you like? Like, what is it to be human? No, I actually like the tragedy. And you see this actually in films which aren't about robots. They're about people who can live forever. So, I like the idea of any story where people fall in love, but you see one person age till they die, which is like Benjamin Button. Like, to me, right. the greatest tragedy in Benjamin Button is finding someone that you love and then you age out from them. And Benjamin Button amplifies that by him actually getting younger as his wife gets older. Right. That, to me, is like a tragedy. Okay. Like, there's an expression when they say that, the worst thing as a parent is if you see your child die before you. And it's the same sort of spirit. Like you've got something, someone you love and you just can't be with them and, and love can't contain them in the same timeline as you. And so that aspect I quite like. So Bicentennial Man's answer to that is fuck their daughter. Well, it is kind of weird, right? So we talked about dark ideas just earlier alluding to the character of Gigolo Joe from Artificial Intelligence. So this film actually, for a really soft, family-orientated PG film, it does bring up a complex idea about a robot having sex with a human. And not just that, but a robot having sex with the granddaughter of his original owners. And he's more than just a sex toy as well. Like, it's not like, oh, the character of Andrew Martin robot Robin Williams is a – he's not like a, just a talking vibrator. No, he's intended to basically like, be like a butler. Yeah, that's right. Which I guess it's interesting because it feels like AI gets a lot of the ideas around what robot sexuality would be much more right, and we'll get to that when we talk about AI. 
as if the I think Bicentennial Man's set in two thousand and five when they first get him. But as if robotics isn't going to be entirely driven by people wanting to fuck robots. Like they're not going to be butlers to begin with. Yeah, I mean maybe they'll fetch you stuff. Well, <laughs> this is I guess the sad part about humanity is that in every major technological invention over time, it's actually been sex that's historically driven its innovation. So, for example. All those various viewing formats of VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, VR, 3D, and online streaming of video, all those ways of consuming video visual content have been driven by the porn industry. And you can't help but think in relation to robots, that will happen. I mean, we already see it right now. You see those odd little snippets on a BuzzFeed-like website or social media where there's some sort of crazy robot that you can get custom-made in Japan or something that's sent to the US or Australia, which serves those needs for a variety of people and their various interests, shall we say. Don't want to kink shame anybody here. No, that's you know. <laughs> Hashtag kink shame. This is an inclusive podcast for all these people who like to basically fuck corpses. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Once again, views on this podcast and our views of his own. <laughs> I will say, they have imbued Robin Williams' character with a nice chunky butt, though. So, for people who are into robot ass fancy. Buttocks. He really does. Like, it's yeah. quite bizarre. Like, in the character design, I'm curious as to who thought, you know what? He doesn't look robotic enough. We need big glutes. Yeah, but no front bulge. He just can have a chunky butt. Maybe it was just to fit in. I don't know. Maybe they had to put a mic pack back there or something and then had to build it out. I don't know. Like, Or maybe Robin Williams himself just has like ample ass and they were just like, well, we've got to do it. Let's, gotta- let's amplify the ample ass. Yeah. Maybe it was a specific request. Maybe it was like, hmm, what this needs is a little uh, badonkadonk. I don't know. That was one of the things that I liked about it. I, was just, I would always just glance down and be like, yeah, there he is. <laughs> so, in your um, review of this film- one of the only redeeming traits is the production design of a robot's ass. That's it. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe when Robin Williams signed onto this movie, he was like, I'm only going to do it if the robot has has a big butt. <laughs> and they were like, what? What do you mean? You, what about your pay pack? Because I don't care about that. I just got paid for Patch Adams. I just want bulky robot ass. Yeah, for a... All those robot ass fancy fans out there. Maybe Chris Columbus was the um, silver sheen butt fiend. <laughs> okay, actually, we should mention Christopher Columbus because in all these twin movies, and as we just discussed with Spielberg, it's always interesting to try and place this film in the context of their filmography to understand where they've come from and where they went after each of these respective films. So, Christopher Columbus is an interesting character. He's a bit like Robert Zemeckis and Ang Lee in that he's been very willing to experiment with technology and had a sort of certain fascination with certain types of stories. So we're in the end of 99 when Bicentennial Man came out. Up till then he'd done, starting in 87, Adventures in Babysitting, 88, Heartbreak Hotel, 90, Home Alone, 91, Only the Lonely, 92, Home Alone 2, 93, Mrs. Doubtfire, 95, Nine Months, 98, Stepmom, 
and 99 Bicentennial Man. And then after this, he gets on the old Harry Potter train, starting with the Sorcerer's Stone, if you're American, or the Philosopher's Stone in 2001, then 2002, (laughs) Chamber of Secrets. And then he does a series of musicals, basically. 2005, Rent. Uh, And then he does 2009, I Love You Beth Cooper. He gets back on the, what do you call it, Supernatural? No, the young adult, what do you call that world? Not Supernatural, Fantasy, Fantasy. In 2010 with Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. And then he has, it all kind of starts getting pear-shaped. He did Pixels in 2015, The Christmas Chronicles 2, which he's shooting right now in Look, I don't 2020. Know any, I don't know what any of that shit is. So, yeah, things aren't looking good. But in 1999, I guess this felt like a continuation of the ideas, in you know, or like in Stepmom or Mrs. Doubtfire. Like that kind of, they were trying to go for that family-friendly thing. I don't know. It makes me want to revisit Mrs. Doubtfire and just see how padded Robin Williams' butt was in that. <laughs> uh, look, I hate to hammer a topic here, but join us for the other podcast we do, Robin Williams' Butt in Movies. Well, let me uh, point a few positives about Bicentennial Man. And I'm really searching on, here. I'm really trying to like find gold amongst those rocks in those hills. But the way the film is actually shot is very contained. This could have easily have been a low-budget $10 million film. It's primarily set in a house. There's like one or two trips to an office with like a couple of shots exteriors, which don't really show a particularly amazing dynamic science fiction landscape. A lot of time spent on the beach. And then in the last second half of the second act, he's wandering around trying to find versions of him. His suit is very Basic in the sense that it's it's a practical suit. It's not CG. It's very simple. I mean, the film is a very contained story and could have been made for an incredibly low budget. So, in that regard, it's very simple. Like, just think of the characters. There are so few characters. There aren't any crowd scenes, except for one crowd scene when he discovers a female robot. But it's a very simple film in that regard. And the storyline is very simple as well. So I guess from a positive point of view, it's a very clean line. The story knows exactly what it is and sticks to it. Yeah, it's interesting because you sort of in a way miss out on the kind of world building that you might be interested in in a movie like this. You know, like you say, they go to the occasional office and stuff, but you never you never really get the sense of what's sort of happening in the in the universe like around this, whereas, you know, AI has these ideas around, oh, the cities and climate change kind of very presciently, and the flesh fairs and the treatment of robots. This sort of just moves past all of those kind of ideas, and I suppose because it's aiming to be a family film. But even then, they could have used certain visual iconography to convey David being one of many. Here's an example. He's a robot. He comes in a box. I can't recall any shots that depict a conveyor belt of robots or a series of boxes of similar robots like him. Now, maybe there could be, and we're told that he's one of thousands or millions, but there's a great shot. I think it's sort of like the end of the second act or start of the third act in Artificial Intelligence. When David's stumbling around, he's just encountered a robotic version of himself, another David, who's sitting in an armchair and talks back at him. And then he kind of 
discovers this room full of all these boxes of other Davids. And he has this realization that he's not unique. He's a clone. And these boxes start sort of jiggling, suggesting that the other Davids inside are kind of waking up and are alert and alive. And it's one of those few moments in the film where he becomes truly aware that he is not a unique boy. And in Bicentennial Man, David, we're told by Sam Neill's character, is unique. He expresses creativity and so on. But we rarely get an opportunity to actually see another version of David. One of the few examples I can think of is when David puts someone appears to be- Wait, no, his name's Andrew. Oh, sorry, Andrew. You're confusing you, David. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Andrew takes off to try and find other versions of him. So that's cool. And he encounters- this kind of like lobotomied version of him laying white lines on a sports field who seems pretty cranky and curmudgeonly. And that's kind of it. And he discovers a female version that, you know, cliche, cliche, has hips and breasts and so on. But there's never actually like that opportunity to have a shot, as I recall. And maybe it's in the movie, but if it is, it's not placed in the right area to try and draw attention to the fact of this awareness that he is one of many even though he is unique amongst those many. But they don't really, I mean, apart from that he can do some woodworking or whatever, they never explain what it, it's just like a manufacturer's error that has made him unique. And they, they even don't install his personality chip or whatever, but that the female, inverted commas, robot has that. And for whatever reason, the personality chip just makes them insanely annoying. But- Andrew, the robot, he never had his per- – he- I just didn't understand, like, is it just a bug in the system that has made him human-like? Well, this is the problem with the film. In a good science fiction film, you have believable science underpinning the fiction. So, science fiction is often set in the future because you're looking at how a realistic version of science could create a fictional story. That's why Bicentennial Man, to me, is such a poor film in that – Any opportunity to actually explore the science is just tossed out the window and just explained away with some sort of one-liner, as in, please don't turn your mind to that. And as you say, like, there could have been a conversation where they said, we do not know why David has a creative streak and is learning progressively faster than the capped learning capacity or the capacity to empathise of other robots like him. They kind of imply it's an error of a sort, but that's not clear. And then they actually don't ask the question, well, why? I mean, you know, a film that's actually more interesting, more challenging, that looks more at the science element, and it still could be a PG family film. Sam Neill's character would say, why? Like, why is David becoming creative? And all Sam Neill's character does is say, this guy's creative, we should treat him more like a human than a robot, but no one's actually asking why is he creative? It feels to me like almost by design they've done that because they don't want to have to hit the harder question of like at what point if you're going to start giving robots like programming them emotions and feelings, at what point do you need to start treating them better? They just make him an aberration so as that he can be like the Jesus of robots or whatever, like the chosen robot. As opposed to, at what point is it fine not to kick a toaster because you've made it go, wee? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? mean? This is explored so much better in iRobot, which I find a really underrated film by Alex Proyos. And I 
find Will Smith's at his charming best in that film, where they do ask the question about what happens when a robot actually gains true autonomous thought. It's, you know, true artificial intelligence, uncapped, unsupported, that's freestanding. And and what does that mean? Like, what happens then? Like, do you have to see the robot as a slave? And that's the whole analogy to the African-American slaves in US culture, right? Like, this Well, is- which is in itself kind of like, I don't know if that's an analogy that movies about robots should be. Really, my but anyway. No, it's it's a messy one. It's not a clean one. Yeah. It's not always done yeah. rightly. But that's been a history of American cinema that has often been sure, sure, in sure. various fictional stories, including artificial intelligence. They hark back to the idea of slavery, and so sure. David's a slave. He wants to become free. Wait, Andrew. Andrew, Which sorry. Andrew, what are we I talking prefer, about? They're, they're like apostles' names in the Bible or something. Uh, I'm confusing them. That's true. From one to the other, and if we're using this Jesus iconography to describe Andrew. That's my confusion. But, look, I think it's just also messy as to what the theme of the film is. Like, is the theme that he wants to be free and not be a slave, he wants to be autonomous, or is that he wants to be human? I think it's both and in that order, but it's a bit of a messy journey to get there. For me, it was the human one first. I mean, all of his, all of the plot developments and even just in the design is him increasingly becoming human and increasingly looking more like Robin Williams until I presume at some point they decided, yes, this is how we want him to look. In fact, we want him to be a very hairy human. Yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> you could do whatever you want with this robot, but no, let's put thousands and thousands of hairs in his back. <laughs> like, whose choice was that? He's like, ah, yes, finally I can look like a human. Make me the hairiest human alive. Actually, what's really good about this film is that when Oliver Platt is designing his human form. He does something which is quite clever and they call it hanging a lantern, as in like in screenwriting terms, hanging a lantern is a line you put in to anticipate a question the audience may have or to quickly just extinguish a question they may have just asked as the story has unfolded. And in this case, when he's designing Rob Williams's face, and it's pretty cool the effect actually where he's just sort of like slowly moulding it. I mean, it's just silly and unrealistic in the sense is that's how he actually would create a face by with place with like almost plasticine creating it on the spot but as he's doing that and molding the nose and the kind of sort of hookish nose of Ron Williams he makes some sort of smart comment about you have to create a face with flaws which is that knowing wink to the audience and to Ron Williams the actor which is like oh look he's a reasonably looking guy but he's not like a Brad Pitt he's not a supermodel and that also be applies to 20 something handsome Jude Law robot. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess because Jude Law's robot is actually a gigolo, it makes more sense that you cast Jude Law for that character. Sure. So that's kind of fun in that sense. And obviously, the sooner you get Robin Williams out of the costume, the sooner that Robin Williams can do the best of Robin Williams. The problem is, though, is that this is a role which is no man's land. For Robin Williams, because the rule of thumb is Robin Williams, shaven, funny, off the leash. Other end of the spectrum, Robin Williams, hairy, bearded, serious, Oscar winner. Mm. There are two yeah. versions of Robin Williams at opposing ends of the spectrum. This is in the middle. This is messily in the middle. He's shaven. He's not particularly funny and he's not particularly serious. He's just kind of in the middle. 
And I suspect that's one of the reasons why this film didn't resonate as much either, because people weren't getting the Oscar-winning Fisher King, you know, stand the tables, give a speech version of William Williams, uh, the one from Goodwill Hunting. Nor do they get the version at the other end, which is Patch Adams, Mrs. Doubtfire, Shanigans, Mork and Mindy. It's just a middling version of Robbie. All right. Well, I feel that you're kind to this movie. I was searching for good traits for it. I found myself, look, not moved to the point of tears. I would say it moved the dial just a little bit at the very end when the human congress or whatever it is finally recognises him as a human, but he's dead. Yeah. I thought, oh, that's quite nice. Chris Columbus, he sure can do a a sappy ending. Yeah, and look, that's not bad, I guess. He finally gets that thing that he wants, but he kicked the bucket. (laughs) Look, I always love in films where someone gets what they want, but it's just too late or it's not quite what they want. And I agree. Like, I was aware that it was pulling my heartstrings, that the film was manipulating me towards the end. But I thought, you know what? This is the way you tell the story for maximum emotional effect. You have him get what he's always wanted, but just when he gets it, he can't savour it because he's dead. Do you think he goes to heaven? Do they discuss heaven in this film? I don't think they do, do they? No. In fact, it probably raises a whole bunch of questions that are never actually about, like, are we saying that he's somehow imbued with a soul, if you even believe in the concept of souls or, or heavens, or is he the only robot in robot heaven? Well- Because he's the only one who, I don't know, man. Well, that's one of the things in this film where basically they could have actually explained the glitch in his robotic brain as being a soul or- if you've got all these elements come together, that has some magical effect or a scientific resonance in which that has fostered empathy and creativity and so on. If that was the case, then theoretically, he could actually have a soul. And you know, do you know where it goes? Souls? Yeah. Tra- no, robot yeah, they souls. Go- they got a transformer heaven. Oh, do they? Is that actually established in a Transformers I movie? I think isn't there a scene in Transformers where they have a flashback to Transformers heaven? Or something oh like that. God. Yeah. That's awesomely stupid. Yeah, that'd be great. That's where he should go. But it's not up to Bicentennial Man to ask those uh, tough questions. Well, let's I get suppose. to really artificial it, intelligence because they- oh, Before we go on, before we just go yeah. on, I will say this. Earlier you said you do like movies about people growing old past their true loves and that this does attempt that. Yes. If that's your whack, just watch Highlander. It does that and has people chopping each other's heads off. agree. Highlander is a better version of the same story. And I couldn't think of it at the same time, but you're right. It's great. Like, that's a fantastic version of that story. And Mr. Lambert Lambert does a great job, actually, of wearing the emotional exhaustion of living through love. And he doesn't have to do it in a robot suit with a bulk ass. And on that note, let's jump from a bulky ass to a tight Jude Law ass. Oh, phew. I thought you were going to talk about child ass for a second. That'd be fucking weird, man. (laughs) That's awkward. (laughs) I chose Gigolo Joe. Gigolo Joe. Nice. So, let's jump to- What do you know, Gigolo Joe? All right. Tell me. Love it? Hate it? Walk me through it. It was interesting watching this, actually, all the way through. Um, Oh, by the way, that should be a quote by Gabe Dowrick on a poster. (laughs) Quote. It was was interesting watching this all the way through. Unquote. As opposed to just in bits and pieces, like, just catching it and- 
Okay, but it's not like you have... No one watches movies on free-to-air TV anymore. Like, oh, at 8.30pm on a Friday night, this movie's going to be on. Maybe you come home from the pub and you catch the second half of it. So, movies that, that came out 19 years ago, there was still the possibility of having seen bits and pieces over the years. Anyway, I kind of didn't like the first 25 minutes of this. And I was like, oh, God, I'm really not going to... This isn't as good as I remembered. And I hate this fucking kid. He's so creepy and weird. But then once he gets really meanly dumped in the woods or saved, depending on how you look at it, I guess, because she doesn't go get decommissioned. I liked it a lot. It was just that first 20 minutes or something I found hard to warm to. But then when they introduced Gigolo Joe and the Flesh Fair and all of these things, and I thought it, was, it became increasingly interesting. And notwithstanding just the, the great technical elements of the movie, the, you know, Janusz Kaminski, nice photography, the production design, some of those really great Steven Spielberg, really cool, subtle directorial things like like the sequence where Gigolo Joe finds the dead woman and weirdly Hector, not Hector Elizondo, who's the dude who had killed her? I don't know, that's played as a one I started to really enjoy it. And by the end, I was quite into this film, I must say. I was enjoying it a lot. Yeah, I agree with all of that. This film to me is a classic film that when you watch it later on, you question why it wasn't appreciated more. And I actually think this film has actually grown reputation since it was released. I think this film really suffered, as I alluded to before, to the heritage of Kubrick in that everyone thought that Spielberg could never do a good version of what Kubrick always wanted to do. So basically, the film was behind the eight ball from the start. And I think this film, if you just watch it, you know, 18 years later – with fresh eyes, it's a great film. And I don't think necessarily a Kubrick version would have been better. I think this walks a great line between some lighter and darker moments. For example, the first 20 minutes you speak of, which you didn't like, I was actually amazed how courageous it was for a mainstream film. And this probably is because it was made as one of those first films through Spielberg's own studio, DreamWorks, where... David's joined the family, and as you say, he is creepy as hell. Like, the film is shot in a way like it's a horror film, and David is the horror antagonist. And it is just eerie. It really is. Like, to me, it actually almost puts a mainstream audience offside in that it's really hard to empathise with the kid, David, and it's also – you put yourself in a situation where you're making it difficult for the audience and Francis O'Connor's character, the mum, to like David because the way he's presented. Surely that's by design. That- oh, it is. It is. But I'm just saying it's making it more challenging because if he was just a robot already. His parents are fucking assholes, right? I mean, they try to replace their sick son with this robot boy. But then when their son gets better- they sort of immediately, or not immediately, but they, they very quickly abandon their robot boy, who they've allowed to be imprinted on them. I would slightly disagree with that. I would say that Francis O'Connor is actually still very loyal to him, but certainly the dad just is figuratively tossing him to the curb. I, but I think Francis O'Connor is still in the corner, but obviously her attention is somewhat diluted by her real living flesh son who's returned who's also a dickhead, I guess there's a nice ambiguity there, In particularly, I suppose you're right, with her. But, yeah, like her son who recovers and all the boys that say at the birthday party, 
they're all real little pricks to him. I suppose you do begin to empathise with the character of David, who has no idea how to behave properly, has always behaved like a weird creep. Yeah. And I suppose it does a better job of asking those questions. Like, yes, we've allowed this boy to sort of imprint on us with his unconditional love that will last for thousands of years and turn into this sort of like horrible prison for him or whatever. But um, I suppose the dad's attitude towards him does sort of succeed at, well, he's just a robot. I mean, he's just a, a toaster that's learnt to love or whatever without the ability to make toast. You know, he's just made in a factory. Yeah. The biggest villain in the film to me is the dad. Because the dad is just emotionally clueless. So their son's in a coma at the start of the film. Their only child. So all eggs, one basket. Mom is grieving, Francis O'Connor. So dad thinks at this point, what he'll do is bring home a talking toaster as a replacement son to try and fill the void without any prior consultation at all. Yeah, totally. At all. So this is his solution to try and help his grieving wife. And then, when she actually does get attached to the talking toaster, he then actually turns around and says, it's talking toaster. Get over it. Like, this dad's terrible. Like, he's not a very responsible father. And I think also what this film does really well, speaking of the imprinting you mentioned before, that's a really great detail. Because humans fall in love with family, their own family, with strangers who they might marry and have their own family with, but they also fall out of love. And that's a really great detail about artificial intelligence is that it takes this idea of love and imprinting is basically unconditional love, but it can't die or be diluted. So with rejection, it doesn't actually dissipate David's affection for his family which I think is incredibly short-sighted by the manufacturers of the Davids, but a great comment on the nuances of human love. Like, at its strongest, it is an unbreakable bond. But through various events like trauma, through attractions to other people, through abuse, all sorts of complications, that love can definitely fracture. And it's funny that there isn't actually like a kill switch, a safe word, for the imprinting. I guess he'll never grow up. So they've created a child robot who will always be a child, who will unconditionally love whomever says the keywords. But what happens when they die? Like, what would have happened if Frances O'Connor became like, you know, she's like a 90-year-old woman who still has a 10-year-old son robot, and then she dies of old age? Is it just going to – is it going to be one of those like tragic – Photos you see of like a, a dog by a gravesite, unable to ever leave its master's side. Yeah, totally. And also, too, uh, just by the, on that point, you build a robot that cannot physically age. Now, two things have to happen here. Either you need to get the upgrade to get like a teenage body, an adult body on it. Or if you get like an internal upgrade, you've got this 45-year-old man with a deep voice in a child's yeah. body. But- Who wants to be the parent to a 10-year-old forever? Like, seriously. Like, look, everyone's great at certain ages, but there is a joy to be able to to be experiencing a relationship with your parent and vice versa at different ages. Like, in the past, I think in one of the previous podcasts, you mentioned, you know, seeing a movie with your dad, right, as an adult, and then seeing a movie with your sister as a kid. Like, there are various ages that you want to cherish and enjoy as a parent. 
I don't think a 90-year-old woman who's got dementia lying in bed, who's pretty much bedridden and crippled, wants to be dealing with a 10-year-old kid asking the same questions, being, yeah, I guess very gentle and enthusiastic, but also potentially quite annoying. <laughs> but what if she had got him the, the adult man upgrade? Then you're dealing with a, let's say they got the Robin Williams upgrade. Then you've got the, a robot in the body of Robin Williams still doing them creepy things like cutting your hair off in the middle of the night. Now you've just got a robot serial killer as a son. Like, there is no outcome here except for maybe a few years of having this 10-year-old robot that's actually... At some point, you're clearly going to have to send them back to get popped by the manufacturer. It's William Hurt, the designer of this robot, is an asshole. This is a terrible... And they set it up as an aberrant... Like, as a, they don't make a lot of robot boys or robot children for this... Presumably for this exact reason, that it's weird. Yeah, they should basically have some sort of inbuilt life cycle where within, say, five years or eight years, basically until that robot would have turned 18, it dies. But, of course, oh, yeah. that's now, not going to work out. Now you're out buying well. a robot boy with cancer. Like, <laughs> oh, I can't wait for him to, you know, oh, I can't wait <laughs> for my child to die. Like, what the fuck is that? That's horrible too. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, we built this robot with an end use date so i guess like the replicants in blade runner or whatever but uh we've decided to also simulate non-hodgkin's lymphoma in him <laughs> this will be a, a great experience for the whole family um, <laughs> as he slowly fa- you know like what the fuck william hurt you horrible robot designer none of this is anything but terribly dystopian you know it's like, funny you described before like what would happen if this 90 year old woman is with this 10 year old boy This reminds me of all the talk about incels in relation to the Joker movie. Now, I wasn't aware of what incel was until recently. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't an incel an abbreviation of involuntary celibate? So, it's basically like Uh, a man, a white man, who may be working class and middle class in his 20s through to 50s, who yearns for a emotional and sexual relationship but doesn't have either and lives with his mother. Is that basically the definition of an incel? Yeah, I would say so. Probably with a big dose of yeah misogyny and misanthropy and self-pity. So those in, key details that. are part of the end. Those negative traits are the part that are used to demonise or weaponise arguments against incels because it's been yeah, talked about as incels are the ones who may have been the sort of people that have been involved in a mass shooting or something like that. So clearly you don't have to be a a person who lives at home to be a negative person, but they're talking about what's the forensic kind of analysis to particular types of people that have a negative attitude towards certain cultures or races or women, et cetera. As you described, don't we have basically a robotic version of an incel here where basically you've got this – Lonely character who only craves the love of the mother, living at home without a relationship with anyone outside the home life, and is devoted to the mother figure, but doesn't actually have a way to relate to the rest of society. Totally. And when the mother dies, you've basically got robot Norman Bates. Like, <laughs> what's this robot going to do? Sit in the basement and dress up as his dead mum? Like, <laughs> oh, man. You know. Right. These are the dark angles which was never thought through in the world building of AI. <laughs> no, maybe it was thought through. Maybe this is what it's saying. It's like don't make childlike robots because it's going to end terribly for them. They're going to spend thousands of years sitting at the bottom of the ocean pining for their mum. Well, I think one of the but- great details about AI is that it shows the value 
of how humans can foster empathy from humans if they're in certain forms. So, you mentioned the flesh market before, the flesh show, whatever it's called. Flesh fair. The flesh fair. Yeah. So, great name for that particular location. And apparently, that was actually Spielberg's idea. So, again, another example of a darker idea being something that came from the dark abyss of Spielberg's non- or PG-13 mind. And that basically depicts all these robots of various types. Most of them are older robots. Most of them are older models that- are less Android-looking and might have sort of four limbs or be a, ro- a TV screen with a pair of legs. There's some weird-looking ones where you're like, totally. oh, what was that guy's function? Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. But by having a child, not just an Android, a human-looking robot, but a child, it evokes sympathy of the daughter of one of the Flesh Fair owners. And that's a great example of it takes the innocence of a child or a perceived child for a human to see it as more than a talking toaster. Yeah. And I love the way that um, they do that thing where these humans are obviously greatly enjoying the destruction of these robots who all appear to have been given personalities. And, you know, at one point one of the robots asks another robot to turn off their, like, pain receptor or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's awful, isn't it? what type of psycho built robots with pain receptors? Yeah. Like, this is like that, you know, there's that bit in one of the Star Wars movies where a robot's being branded. And it squeals. And it starts screaming. And you're like, who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> you know, like, what is wrong with people? And obviously, though, like, I suppose on some level that pain isn't real or something. It's just a series of zeros and ones that is telling the thing to make a noise or something. I mean, I guess you could we could have a really long conversation about what even that is. Is that even real pain? But why would humans want to program that pain into robots? And also, how would you program pain? And also, like, like how would you tell a robot to fit? Like, it just there's some interesting concepts that'll sort of turn your brain into spaghetti, I suppose. Yeah, I think this it is a challenge of trying to develop true artificial intelligence in a humanoid physical form is that to try and replicate the emotional side, so the emotional intelligence that kind of goes hand-in-hand with the traditional intellect, the artificial intelligence, you need to basically recreate all those elements that make humans, and that includes pain, because with pain comes cautiousness, with pain comes empathy, because if you experience pain, you can then empathise with someone else experiencing pain, so you may be, or you hope to be, less inclined to push pain upon them, and if they are hurt, you're more inclined to rescue them, and so on and so on. So essentially, mm. with all the good comes the bad. Yeah. So what do you think? If when we, in the future, when we're making robots, we should probably avoid imbuing them with these qualities. It's just going to end badly for everybody. Well, this is the funny thing, right? Because if you didn't actually imbue a robot with pain, you might actually have robots torturing humans and having no concept of understanding. So they would essentially right. would waterboard to death because- they wouldn't understand that the torturing goes to a breaking point to extract knowledge. But if you push too far, the human becomes numb to the pain or actually becomes unconscious. So I can actually see why you would want to try and create a pain to be experienced by robots from the empathy and the sympathy side. But then I think of, say, an example of some of these Boston Dynamics parodies online 
we sort of show essentially like the uprising of robots. Like if you kind of treat robots like slaves, so if humans don't show empathy to robots themselves, then the robot actually becomes frustrated. And like all slaves, they reasonably want to break free. But if they don't have empathy themselves or can't experience pain, won't they just essentially obliterate humans without any appreciation of the agony that would put humans in at an emotional and physical level? So what are you saying? We should not only create robots with empathy, we should also then mistreat them so they can understand what mistreatment is so that we hope they don't mistreat us? Dude, this whole robot thing is fucked. It's turning my brain to spaghetti. I'm not encouraging the abuse of robots. That does not represent the views of this podcast. Robots, if our overlords in the future are listening, please acknowledge that we respect your right to be autonomous beings. I differ from Ben. If your microwave talks back to you, you have a duty to take that thing out onto the road and kick the shit out of it. You teach that microwave a lesson. If it is not heating your damn spaghetti up, you're reheating your leftovers just the way you like it, you kick the shit out of Remember it. Remember that scene in, our, in Office Space where they get that photocopier, they take it out to a field with baseball bats, and the three of them just lay into it, destroying it. That's you- yeah and a talking microwave head-to-head. I mean, let's face it, given the way that humans treat other humans and then other species, I can't imagine it's like we're barbaric by nature anyway, so, you know. Yeah, if we can't treat ourselves with a degree of humanity, if we can't treat humans with humanity, then what hope do we have to either treat robots with the same thing or expect it from robots? Either way, we're kind of fucked. Exactly. Which I suppose maybe brings us to the ending of this movie. And earlier we discussed, oh, is the idea that this was a happy ending. But, you know, as we talked about that the character of David has been given this unrequited affection that will never end for his mum or his inverted commas mum. He's been imprinted. The idea that he gets to finally spend one day with her as a happy ending after spending thousands of years feeling only one thought, how does anyone read that as a happy ending? I mean, what's your take on the ending? I agree with you entirely. I disagree with the reviewers. I take it as a tragedy because he gets what he wants, as we always say in good films, but do you really want it? So he gets what he wants and then he gets his mother back, albeit for 24 hours. So I suppose it's a minor victory. But then, of course, he's lost her forever. So I don't see it as sweet ending at all. I see it as a tiny blip of hope and goodness in the later portion of his lifetime, which spans thousands of years. And after that day ends, I figure he'll just be in mourning and back to square one. Like, I don't think this will actually scratch his metallic itch and mean he'll never ask for the affections of his mother again. If he's been imprinted with an affection for her of this degree, and he has this super lifelong battery, won't he just mourn for her again forever? And this is just 24 hours in hundreds of thousands of days without her, which is better than nothing, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I mean, the idea that he gets a day with his mum, and I suppose she's only just some sort of simulcrum anyway- And finally, she says, you know, I love you, David. I've always loved you. And she goes to sleep and he'll never even get this day again. I mean, I guess I read it the assumption that he probably in some way dies here. I guess he probably just turns himself off. I don't know. I mean, are we supposed to think that he continues to sort of live forever with these 
alien slash AI robot creatures? What? Oh, so first things first, did you interpret those characters at the end as aliens or robots? I thought that they were like the the continuation of robotics, like that's where it ended up. So you're right in regards to what the authors intended. But many right, critics, but they're not aliens. Yeah, but many right. critics interpret them as aliens because they actually have a physical form that is almost identical to traditional representations of aliens in Hollywood. So I interpret them as robots, sorry, aliens the first time, but I actually read reviews in preparation of watching the film. And so in knowing that they were, I guess, a significantly more advanced version of artificial intelligence, more advanced robots, it slightly changed my perception at the end in that they may have had empathy for him and they kind of see him as not just an artifact but a messiah-type figure in some ways because there he's linked to the past, which helps them understand and appreciate what's gone before. So they actually, I think, kind of respect him. But I do feel emotionally his he ends on the same night that his recreated mother dies but the way the film set up, if you look at it really logically, I think he lives on. It would actually take an act of grace, so to speak, for those advanced robots to put David out of his misery by pulling out his battery pack. I suppose that would be an incredibly dark ending as Frances O'Connor closes her eyes to go to sleep. We slowly track out as a robot also just yanks out his battery pack. <laughs> I'd be more gentle than that. It'd be basically yeah. like as her eyelids flutter closed- and you sort of see her chest go up and down and then sort of slowly stop heaving, you would just sort of see perhaps a light behind his pupils fade away. Right. And then to perhaps make him right. more human, his eyelids might drop down there. As we realise he's been crushed in a crushed in a pneumatic drill like the T-800. Yeah, you pull out you know, of his face. with just It's like it's silent green. and there's a drill just going through his skull. That's right. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess you could maybe you could read the ending as not actually happening and he just actually sits at the bottom of the ocean forever and this is some sort of robot dream. I don't know. People love that kind of shit. Or somewhere halfway in between and that he was actually rescued by these advanced robots, but he actually doesn't experience that final day with her. They've just plugged him into a program like The Matrix and he's experiencing yeah, that totally. as a dream. And that's just part of the process of extracting information from him. A bit like uh, when we did our review of upgrade where you kind of puts people in a matrix like emotional oh yeah prison totally. so that they feel settled whilst you then sort of take advantage of their hardware or their brain in some other way yeah at any rate there's probably a lot more to consider in ai with these ideas than there was in bicentennial man. yeah i think we'd agree if we can wrap this up with our combined review i think we'd agree that artificial intelligence is a more interesting observation, analysis, and story into the pokey Pokemon, <laughs> the Pinocchio journey of wanting to become a real person. And totally. It, it's more emotionally engaging. It actually questions the challenges of that, if it's even possible. And I think it kind of resolves in a more interesting way. I think the one thing they do quite well in Bicentennial Man is at least the court system or whoever that group of people are, it's like they're like senators or politicians or judges kind of consider the challenge of this. We don't quite have that issue arise here, but I guess at the end of the film, 
humans have become extinct and so basically the question is answered by itself, right, in that- But I would guess that in AI, the question of that has been previously resolved. I mean, AI at one point basically says that there's child sex robots. Oh, yeah, so, that's right. So there's like it really hits some fucked up ideas. Yeah. Hard. Which is pretty edgy for a film, you know, aimed at a white audience. Yeah, totally. So it feels to me like that sort of lived-in world they've had plenty of questions about whether robots could be considered human and if they're inventing robots that appeal to the sort of hor- most horrible parts of humanity then the answer is probably no hu- robots are just disposable. Yeah. All right, let's tie a bow on this bad boy. Noted similarities, coincidence or ripoff between Bicentennial Man and AI. I guess the Pinocchio story, but other than that, they treat this in a pretty different, unique way. Well, does this count for this? Robin Williams is in both of them. He's too, you're right. Yeah, of course. And they actually recorded apparently his voice playing Dr. What, I think, which is that cartoon character. Dr. No? Dr. No. Yeah, Dr. Something. Dr. No is that cartoon character for our listeners who- He's like a sideshow amusement ride or game where basically, like in many of those classic arcade games, he's meant to basically be like telling you the answers to everything. And they recorded that voice apparently before Spielberg came on board, which is interesting. It's like Wikipedia is a sideshow game for some reason in the future. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, sure. Why Google it when Dr. No can tell you? Yeah, that's right. Which film has aged better? I think we know the answer to that one. Oh, yeah. AI. Oh, right. Okay, sure. (laughs) Plot holes or missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers have done better with the concept? Well, I think we'd say that AI did a better job of exploring what it is to be human and all the complications for a robot to do that. Anything else? I think we've fairly well uh, mined that. Okay. Let's just jump to uh, trivia before we get to the awards then. So... Not surprisingly, AI was uh, shot on sound stages, which I think is evident in the film, not in a negative way, but it is a very classic look, doesn't it, of sets. There are some amazing vistas and some scenes are shot in what appears to be a forest when they're being hunted down by the flesh fair captors. But it seems a lot of the scenes, I guess, are very set-like as well, you know, like the very stylized apartment building that Dave and the family live in, or the flesh fair itself, you know, or the amusement park they go to. Like, all these places are just innately quite stylized, right? Yeah. I mean, it looks great. It does. It, it, it's, it's a that good shot of the film. moon, the moon rising over, like the, the moon balloon or whatever it is, rising over the cliff edge. It's just awesome. And that shot of um, when David falls off the edge of the building towards the end and it's played in a reflection of Jude Law's face as he falls like a tear down his face. It's just awesome. Yeah, 100%. All right, bit of trivia. Uh, Perhaps we should do some woulda, coulda, shouldas in terms of casting and so on. So, Bicentennial Man, Tim Allen was considered for the role of Andrew but turned it down due to his commitment to Galaxy Quest. Well, he made the right choice. Galaxy Quest is... Pretty great movie. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. But get this, Tom Hanks was also originally in the hot seat to play Andrew with Wolfgang Peterson directing. What? Yeah. Incredible. Like, that's an odd one, right? You also like this one. Both Robin Williams and Joel Haley Osmond were both shaved <laughs> to play robots. 
to have that kind of creepiness. Wait, so Robert Williams- Haley Joel Osmond was shaved. Yes, his arms were what shaved. What did they shave? His arms. Just those, you know, oh. tiny little hairs that kids have on their arms. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sure. And Robert Williams was basically shaved all over, including his back. Oh, I'm sure. Every day. <laughs> That's right. That's shaving. You know when they talk about four hours in makeup for this role? It actually only took 10 minutes to get in the suit. Because <laughs> he had to be shaved. Oh, yeah. Some other facts from artificial intelligence. Apparently, real-life amputees played some of the robots with missing limbs for authenticity. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Another one is, a- is that the World Trade Center is seeing that final scene and there was the opportunity to remove it, but Spielberg thought of leaving it in for the DVD release because he just thought it was appropriate and would have been insensitive to have removed it. Yeah, and they might have rebuilt it by that year. Who knows? Oh, yeah, possibly. Or maybe it just exists in a multiverse where 9-11 never happened. Possibly. Who knows, man? Another interesting fact, in order to keep the film's PG-13 rating, a building resembling a penis was digitally removed from the Rogue City set. Wow, okay, cock tower, sure. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that it's PG-13 because there is some dark ideas in there, isn't there? I mean, I can't imagine a building that resembles a dick, you know, like, yeah, sure, was it throbbing cock building or something, a big ball sack on it, but I wonder if this movie would be PG-13 today. I think this film would be on the edge because they'd find it thematically dark but find it difficult to try and point to any particular sections that were overtly USR or Australian MA15 because it's more implied than overtly depicted or described. Now, apparently, back to Shudder Wadakudas, Jerry Seinfeld was originally considered to voice and play the comedian robot in Artificial Intelligence. That Chris Rock plays? Yeah. Yeah, right, okay, sure. And Julianne Moore and Gwyneth Paltrow were considered to play the role of Monica. Which is interesting, because Francis O'Connor was not famous at that time. So, um, maybe it was a budget thing? I think Francis O'Connor is fantastic, but I am surprised that she was cast in this role with so few American credits under her belt beforehand. Like, I'm glad for her, but it's surprising. It would have been a safer bet to put... Julianne Moore and Gwyneth Paltrow, or Gwyneth Paltrow in that role. Does anyone think of, um, speaking of the female characters in these movies, whenever Embeth Davitz from Bicentennial Man comes on screen, do you just think, oh, look, it's Miss Honey from Matilda? Who's she? What do you mean, who's she? Which one? Is she the younger daughter or the older daughter? She, Little little Miss. Oh, Little Miss. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about her? Not the girl, the older version of Little Miss and who also plays Little Miss's daughter. She was Miss Honey in... The movie Matilda. And any time she's on in any movie, I always go, oh, it's Miss Honey from Matilda. All oh, right. No? No, I don't, but I was annoyed. You don't point at the screen and say, that's Miss Honey from Matilda? No, but I was annoyed, absolutely senseless, by the repeated use of Miss, what do you call it? Little Miss. Little Miss. That drove me insane. It's a bit weird when a robot is talking to an adult who's about 45 as Little Miss. It just seems odd. True. All right, let's jump to the... Spot the Aussie, Bicentennial Man. Were there any? Well, there's Samuel Neal. Is he? Wait, is he Australian? He's a Kiwi. Was he New Zealand? He's a Kiwi. Oh. And Artificial Intelligence? It's got to be Francis O'Connor, right? I guess so, yeah. Okay. And let's jump to the awards, shall we? Now, let's jump to the box office. The box office. Okay. So, which movie was the box office champ, do you think? Having a guess without checking IMDb? I reckon Bicentennial Man was very likely a box office failure. Okay. And AI did quite well. So, 
Bicentennial Man did 58 million domestically in the US, plus 29 million internationally for a worldwide total of 87 and a half million. So, right. not very good for a film with Robin Williams at his peak. Artificial Intelligence did 78 and a half million domestically, plus 157 and a half internationally for a grand total of 236 million in worldwide total. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it did much better overall. All right, let's jump to the Rotten Tomatoes score. Have a guess. Bicentennial Man versus AI. I reckon Bicentennial Man got bad reviews, but I also reckon AI doesn't have as high a tomato, what are they, tomato meter? Tomato meter. Score, tomato meter score as I would expect. So, Bicentennial Man, 36% with critics versus... 73% 73% for AI. So, AI did much better with the critics. And I bet you if it was reviewed again, retrospectively, I actually think it'd be much higher than 73%. Yeah, totally. I know it's just a, an aggregate. It doesn't actually... It's not 73% good or whatever. So, especially, I can't... I mean, everyone would be given this at least three out of five, surely. Yeah, exactly. I think what doesn't surprise me, but disappoints me about mainstream viewers, is that with AI, it scored 64% with audiences, which is only marginally higher than the 58% with Bicentennial Man. So, everyone loves a chubby robot with a big bum. But I reckon that could also be, like, let's say you've got your own uh, 10-year-old kid and you're like, I want to enjoy a a classic Spielberg family movie about a a little robot who wants to be a human. You put it on, your kid's there watching it, and it's like, Dad, what's what's a gigolo? gigolo? And you're like, uh, it's like the time I asked my dad what pubes are after I saw Wayne's World 2 and he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> you know? I was like, Dad, Garth got pubes. What are pubes? <laughs> and he lied to me. What did he, he say? He lied to me. I can't remember, but that day at the Sussex Cinema in whatever year that came out, oh, my childhood died, but my dad wouldn't tell me what fucking pubes were. Anyway, I later found out and it's haunted me since. I'm glad you later found out. Like, if you'd said, you still I didn't still know. don't know what pubes are. Dad, you still haven't told me what... Dad, I'm a 36-year-old man. You still haven't told me what pubes are. <laughs> Teach me to shave, Dad. I don't know. Anyway. There you go. <laughs> it hurts. Okay. Um, let's go to the awards. All right. All right. Best title. Bicentennial Man versus AI Artificial Intelligence. I still don't even know what a bicentennial is. No, I think the idea was that he lived for 200 years, didn't he? I'm not sure right. if he was designed right. that way, but the reality was that he did. Right, okay. AI is a much better title. Yeah, interestingly enough, it was just, just called AI originally, and audiences just at that time in society, which is only, you know, 17 years ago, couldn't quite read it on, on the poster or understand what it meant, so they actually had to add they, artificial intelligence they went, after they went the acronym. The movies. And they were like, uh, one for AI, please. And they're like, what film? <laughs> what film do you think? <laughs> AI. <laughs> this movie here, AI. <laughs> you mean AI, sir? Oh, right. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> that, thanks. God, I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> Let's go sit down and watch AI. <laughs> AI. <laughs> yeah. That's what the sequel is called because it's got like AI part three is just done with Roman <laughs> numerals. So it's like AI, I, I, I. I. Uh, one for <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Best title goes to AI. All right. Yeah. Best poster. Here all week. Sure. For me, it's um, got to be AI as well. 
Well, I don't know. Hearing about how much the Bicentennial Man poster creeped you out, I'm going to go for that. <laughs> the Bicentennial Man is basically, for the listeners who can't see it, it's essentially a three-quarter shot, which means half side on, half front on, of Rob Williams's half robot face and half human face. It actually looks a bit spooky, I think. Um, oh, it's cursed, man. Yeah. If there was like only two of them left in the world, you know if you hung them in a house, that house would burn down. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I quite liked the AI poster. It actually takes the silhouette of David as forming the gap in the A, and then he, the, his silhouette is the I. That, that's pretty cool. It's maybe a it's little a bit nice too clever by half, but I do like it. So I'm handing it to AI. All I'll right. Give it to AI. The Bill Fleck Big Break Award. Named after Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck. So, who got their big break in either of these movies? Frances O'Connor? Yeah, for AI, I think it's definitely her big break. So, she definitely cleans up there. How about Bicentennial Man? I don't know. Is there any big breakers in this? Not really. I mean, maybe Bradley Whitford. <laughs> this is around the time he, of 1999? West Wing. He, he surely, what, you're a big West Wing fan. He'd probably been on that show for a few years by now, right? I was around the same time, so he wouldn't have been a household name. I mean, maybe Oliver Platt, but I think he'd been in a few other Hollywood films by then anyway, including that film of the crocodile or the alligator. The 90s were Oliver Platt's halcyon time. You couldn't go to the pictures and not have Oliver Platt in a movie. It was a great period for Oliver Platt fans. All right. Well, in that case, in terms of being a big break, it goes to Francis O'Connor in AI. All right. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, any particular faces that, you know, were those sort of character actors who have since surged in popularity? I don't know. I mean, I guess starting with AI... Jude Law's career was quite established. William Hurt, I guess for some audiences, they wouldn't have recognised him. Maybe Ken Lung. Oh, yeah, he turns up in the first scene in yeah. a small role, doesn't he? Or Clark Gregg, who's gone to have a career playing a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent in um, the Marvel Universe. Yeah, right. How about Bicentennial Man? Bicentennial Man. Who I like John Michael Higgins, who pops up as Bill Feingold, Martin's lawyer. He's always a, oh, yeah, he's a great. fun yeah, yeah. screen he's presence. Good. And same with Stephen Root. Stephen Root's great. Yeah, he cleans up a few awards down the track for me. All right, who are you going to give it to then? The first guy you mentioned, I think, should take it. John Michael Higgins, who plays the I lawyer. forgot what the question was, so. <laughs> God, here we go. It was the Before They Were Famous Award. All right. Oh, right, yeah. Let's jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? I reckon that chick or that little girl who's quite surly Punches above her weight in Bicentennial Man. You know the kind of surly teenager? Oh, who has like Miss the, Grace. the boyfriend the parents disapprove of and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, terrible. She's quite surly. I thought, I thought, yeah, I, I'm thinking her. As for AI, any takers? Um, what's the question again? Oh, man. <laughs> really? What are we giving out here? Yeah. I'm going to give it to Enrico Colantani turning up as the murderer. In which film? AI. All right, done. He gets the Tommy Lee Jones. It feels like he's cast against type. Enrico Colantani probably doesn't get cast as the murderer very often. Actually, I only give it to Sam Neill because I actually think in a pretty simple role, he brings a nice balance between authority and empathy in his character. I just don't understand why he says, oh, you can have independence, but you have to move out. Yeah, I know. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? I can't understand. And then later he's like, I'm sorry I kicked you out. Yeah, that is weird. (laughs) What? Yeah. Let the robot build his weird robot things in your backyard. Like, you like having him around, clearly. 
What are you going to be a dick about it? All right, so we've got a draw for the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award. Let's jump to the Dustin Diamond Award. Hasn't it been renamed? I've forgotten. I've renamed it like four and a half times. Okay. Always just some creeping Hollywood weirdo who'd done the bad thing. All right. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Who didn't kick on? Uh, who didn't kick on? I'd say Sam Robards, who plays the dad, Henry Swinton. Why isn't he in more? He's pretty good. Yeah, okay. Let's give it to him. All right, done. Jumping to Easy. the winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top and was it their career high? I'd say in AI, I'd be saying it's probably Spielberg. I think it's actually one of his best films. And he actually really? had the legacy of Kubrick to overcome. Would you say this is top five all-time Spielberg for you? Ooh. I have to go through his filmography and see because it's pretty good. No, maybe not. I do think also Haley Joel Osman is really good. I'd say he came out on top in AI as well, but you'd probably say that The Sixth Sense is his career high. How about Bicentennial Man? As a child actor, he's pretty – it's not an easy role. Yeah. All right, well, who's he up against in Bicentennial Man? What, like the child actor? No, in terms of like being a career high or who led the way? I'd say- Surely it wasn't a career high for anybody, was it? Yeah, in that case, Joel Osman takes it. Haley Joel Osmond. Sorry. He's got three names, mate. I call him Joel on DMs. Okay, sure. Okay. The Best Dialogue Award. Any particular favourite quotes that were memorable that stand out? Well, was there any great quotes in Bicentennial Man? Like, it doesn't feel like one of those movies that lets Robin Williams off the leash to just be like, like doing all of his improv shit, you know, like, hey, Robin, just fill this scene for 25 minutes with weird anachronistic impersonations of things. You know, it's a great lesson in casting and Hollywood filmmaking as to actually hiring the wrong actor. If you're going to hire Robin Williams, you hire him so there's the opportunity, if you want, which fits the character, to let him ad-lib off the leash. But if you actually cast him as a robot who's the least likely possible protagonist to Motormouth, then you've wasted it. Like, cast anyone else but Robin Williams. Do not cast him. There's a line in the film where they talk about the incredibly annoying female-appearing robot as having had her personality chip turned on. So, in a way, it feels like they they metaphorically turned, in fact, literally, I think, because Sam Neill decides not to turn on the personality chip, turned off Robin Williams' personality chip for this movie. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually surprised he agreed to it because he must have been sold on the theme of the story but didn't actually sit back and think, am I the best person to tell that story? And maybe this is a case that, you know how he fluctuated between his serious roles, his dramatic roles, and his comedic roles. Maybe he just sort of misunderstood this as being on the serious side, but the reality was with Chris Columbus having his hand on the uh, rudder, it was never going to be another Goodwill Hunting. True. So we're saying there's no memorable lines. Oh, uh, there's one funny line when one of the kids is naughty, and Andrew says to someone, "One understands why some animals eat their young." That was kind of funny, but really, I'm just scratching around. No. Okay. Well, what about AI? Was there classic lines that embedded themselves in your human soul? No, not really. Just spooky ones. Like there's a line where Monica says. How late do they let you stay up? And David says, I can never go to sleep, but I can lay quietly and not make a peep. That's kind of weird, right? That's a bit freaky. Yeah, that's true. No lines grabbed out. This film 
isn't that film, except for the Gigolo Joe line. Or Gigolo Joe, what are you nuts? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, which sort of you know circles back and repeats a few times. That's kind of like a nice little line to associate with that character. But he is a it. real creep. That kid. They're like, you know, I don't eat. Yes, but I like sitting at the table. Oh, that is weird. Yeah, yeah it's freaky. So all of his like little behaviours there. Well, he actually acts like a sociopath when he's actually watching them eat and he's imitating how they eat. It's just creepy. As we discussed, basically, that's what you're buying, isn't it? Someone who can only ever... You're buying a tiny sociopath. All they're ever going to do is copy the emotional behaviours of the people around them at best. You know, like him laughing when he does the laugh and stuff. Oh, that's freaky. Creepy. And they all burst into into laughter eventually, but I'd be putting him in the broom closet at that point. He's way too scary. Yeah, leave him in the broom closet. Yeah. All right. So, no winners there. Maybe Gigolo Joe gets a go. Okay. Okay. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Uh, Bicentennial Man? That stupid lady robot. I know I've oh, it she's a number of times. It yeah. seems really unfair to whomever plays this yeah. Yeah. robot. But oh. a, lot of, a lot of scenery chewing. How about AI? There's a funny bit where Robot Williams goes and – doesn't he go and tear her head off or something? Oh, it's implied that he just sort of pulls out the battery or something off screen. But yeah. she suddenly goes very quiet. He was all of us in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> How about AI? It's a pretty quiet film. Uh, I can't really think of anyone. Chewers. No. I mean, what's his name? Brendan Gleeson as the- Oh, he's big, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. As the boss of the flesh farmers or whatever they are, flesh traders, flesh fair traders. He was pretty- he was giving it a good go. But then that's sort of par for the course for- Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. He does love a bit of a scenery chew. There's nothing. That's all he does. So I'm saying Gleeson versus Wacky Robot. Wacky Robot wins. Well, yeah, I guess It's so. a bad award to win. Okay. All right, the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Bicentennial Man. Got to be Robin Williams, right? Well, I hope he got paid well for it. Yeah. How about AI? I don't know. It's not like one of those like, oh, Jim Carrey's in this at the peak of his powers. Here's $20 million. Yeah. Movies, is it? No, I think you're right. I think it's uh, Robbie in Bicentennial. Okay. Okay. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award. So, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen? I feel you've given away that for you it's Stephen Root, right? Yeah, I have. You? The Root right for sure. I love that guy. He's up against Clark Gregg in Uh. AI, but I think the Root always wins. Root. All right, Root, we're rooting for you. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. So, Bicentennial Man, I'm giving it to Root again. Are you? Yep. You? I mean, he's cast a fair bit. Oh. But by not cast enough, do you mean almost every single movie ever made could do with Stephen Root in it? Yeah, well, him and Bradley Whitford, to me, are such fun actors. You could sprinkle them in many films and it would season it into a delicious meal. Okay. Well, let's give it to him then. Okay. How about AI? Any takers there? AI. Maybe William Hurt, but ultimately- William Hurt, sure. Yeah, ultimately, I'm going to go back to Bradley Whitford in Bicentennial. Okay. All right. Okay. The Memphis Reigns Award for the most ludicrous name. There weren't really any standouts, were there? Like, no one- uh, I don't know. Brendan Gleeson's character's name is Lord Johnson Johnson. Oh, that's clearly a winner straight away, right? As I said, Enrico Colantani's character's name is just the murderer. Oh, hang um, on. And then, you know, Gigolo Joe. Gigolo Joe is a great name for a character. Yeah. I, I, no, I think I've got it. For me, it's got to be Little Miss. I mean, can you win for being terrible or not? Because that's a ludicrous name. Like, the constant reference to Little Miss drives me insane. 
Does he call Little Miss's daughter Little Miss as well? Oh, that'd be creepy, wouldn't it? Oh, man, tell me about it. Like, also, just the- he loves her. She dies. He loves her daughter, who looks exactly like her, who he's also known since she was a child. I don't know. The whole thing is messed up. Maybe he calls her Little Little Miss. Ugh. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's not get into I'm it. I'm going to give it to Gigolo Joe. Let's not get into it. Artificial intelligence. Okay. okay. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero up against a group of baddies in a single location, like Under Siege. So, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Not really. I mean, I think, if anything, these films actually ride the coattails of a long tradition of exploring AI, and they both in some ways draw from classic literature in that regard. So, not really. I don't think it set the table for a new way of looking at AI. I mean, Blade Runner was doing this 15, 20 years earlier. So, I'd say no. Yeah, that's right. More human than human and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that fresh. All right. Well, it's come to that time of the podcast, Gabe. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Bicentennial Man or AI, artificial intelligence. Now, they're both about robots that seek to be human. So we've got the opportunity to make a sequel to one of these films. What's our pitch to make it? So which film, first of all, is worthy of a sequel. Is Bicentennial Man worthy of a sequel? What's the next one after a bicentennial? What's that called? A tricentennial? A tris- is it tricentennial? Tricentennial Man. Not only is it 300 years later, but he's got three legs. <laughs> I'm thinking that which film, first of all, leaves open the possibility for a sequel and which film is most deserving? I'm saying that, spoilers, Bicentennial Man, he dies. So... And he dies in a kind of like robot-like, or sorry, a human-like form. So it's sure. not really inviting the opportunity of a sequel. AI, on the other hand, leaves it a bit ambiguous at the end. So conceivably, little David lives on after his human mother has died and more adventures could begin. But you could also just have a sequel to AI set within the universe of AI back when, before he was confined to the bottom of the ocean for thousands of years. AI has an interesting world there, much more so than Bicentennial Man. So what I'm suggesting perhaps, Ben, is what if you did a movie set in and around the universe of the flesh fairs and so on and and tease that out some more? So I like this. So are we doing a prequel to artificial intelligence where we find out how these robots are first created or are we doing like a spin-off in the same universe around the same time where perhaps we follow Brendan Gleeson's character, whose name is what? Johnson Johnson? Yeah, Johnson Johnson. And we follow him or someone like him in the Flesh Fair world, which is basically like Thunderdome for androids. Yeah, totally. I mean, he could be the villain or or someone like him, but I feel like you could do an interesting ro- – like, I mean, I guess AI does this is just in 15 minutes or whatever, but – a robots on the run story, a robots on the run from these robot catchers. Okay, so we need to try and find some analogous films to try and convey the type of film we're making to 
Big Shot Hollywood. So, okay. what so are some films on the run. exactly? And we can perhaps okay. sub in humans for robots. And if we want, we can kind of like lean into those analogies that sometimes appears in films about smart robots, where it's about the theme of slavery and freedom from slavery. So, what are films about people on the run or slaves on the run or something like that? That could be a bit of a blueprint for our sequel to artificial intelligence. Well, you could expand on the idea, for instance, of the robot framed for a crime that he didn't do, a, a robot the fugitive in the universe of AI. Oh, I like or that one. That's North good. North by Northwest. Yep. So something like that. It's basically versions of North by Northwest, the fugitive, maybe a bit of minority report. Someone who's on the run, and if they're on the run, like Minority Report and like the fugitive. They have to basically try and find out who the real murderer was whilst not being caught. Yeah. In a world that doesn't care about robots, is happy to – they would just want to bring them in. And you could have a whole a raft of – a rogues gallery of the coolest human robot bounty hunters who have to go after them. Oh, know, so we've now got the moral conundrum of someone being hunted by their own. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. I think we're inventing Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, actually, we are. Uh, <laughs> all right. It's November 2019 and uh, Rick Decker. Oh, shit. Fuck. All right. Uh, <laughs> Somebody does. Okay. Here's a different way to try it. Do we use performance capture and recreate Haley Joel Osment as one of the Davids in that world? So we saw his character, David, caught by the Flesh Fair and then eventually he escapes with Gigolo Joe, played by Jude Law. Do we actually have – imagine sort of off-screen. If you were to pan the camera left to right and zoom in, you'd find another David's being captured by the Flesh Fair. So, in that sense, by using CG and performance capture, if we wanted to, and with the permission of Haley Joel Osman, we could use his likeness and thus maintain the visual – iconography of the film, like the protagonist looks the same and he's actually a David, so it's thematically on message for the film, do we do that or do we just choose a random different robot? Like how much is the likeness of Jail Haley Osman worth to our sequel in terms of box office prospects? Well, I did enjoy the movie Tusk. so That's a not, adult, not hairy, bearded <laughs> version right. of Jail Haley Osman. I'm thinking we might need to get someone like a kid – doing motion capture, and we might get Jail Haley Osman to come back to the voice, which we then kind of manipulate to try and drop it so he sounds like a kid again. Okay, but we're not suggesting we go to one of our previously discussed ideas and you actually bring in adult Haley Joel Osman to play a adult version of David who has now been up, in inverted commas, upgraded and still, still loves his mother. But that's a what chronological sequel, it- though, whereas you're talking about well, doing a spin-off in the same world at the time. I'm now pivoting. In the middle of this pitch to this executive, without ever discussing this with you beforehand, <laughs> I've suddenly pivoted and I'm now pitching an entirely new idea, which is the Psycho 2, not Psycho 1, Psycho 2 of robot movies. So an adult David, having had his body upgraded, returns home to the now empty house that his dead mother lived in while a series of robot murders takes place around him. And we, the audience, wonder, is adult robot David committing these murders? So it's sort of similar to that French horror film High Tension, 
where we see the character looking around and then we realise towards the end of the film, spoilers, that it's all, we're seeing the entire film through the biased eyes, adult Haley Joel Osman, yeah. and then it's revealed at the end that he's actually murdering everyone to protect yeah. the image or the family house he used to live in. Yes, murder boy. Murder boy. Murder man. All right, before we lock off on that, just confirm, has there ever been a sequel to Pinocchio? Because that would be the logical template for a sequel to Artificial Intelligence. And I'm asking this in front of the Hollywood producer in the room as part of our pitch, but making it seem like we prepared all of this long beforehand. Has there ever been a sequel written by someone else, a spiritual sequel to Pinocchio? Because that would be, logically, another blueprint for our sequel. Disney tried to make a animated sequel to their film Pinocchio, but it never happened. Okay. And what was the basic storyline about in that? I believe it was he's now a real boy and he's on a journey to learn more about life or something. I suppose he's now a real boy and he's like, if only I were a real man, would be the thing. Yeah, see, I'm thinking that having just spent millions of dollars on the first AI and having had Steven Spielberg, who is Hollywood royalty, be the architect of that story, I'm thinking they won't let us do a similar budgeted or even lower budgeted version of AI with a sociopathic robot in the spirit of Psycho 2. I think we'd have to try and up our pitch to make it a more family-friendly pitch. And we could, just like Spielberg, perhaps imbue it with more adult traits like the character of Gigolo Joe. But on the face of it, we need a more accessible, mainstream, four-quadrant pitch. So, Right. I think that's fair. If it was Pinocchio 2, I've done some quick Googling here in the room on my phone whilst you were pivoting and capturing the attention of our Hollywood executive. I've turned to the side, pulled out my smartphone, Googled, and pulled up cancelmoviesfandom.com. And I've got an angle here for Pinocchio 2, right? Right. So, Pinocchio is now a real boy, is now on a journey to learn more about life as it is. And the film would later have Pinocchio ask, why is life sometimes unfair? So having always wanted to be alive, he now questions the problems with living. And do you know why it was cancelled? Sounds like a bummer, man. Well, apparently, John Lasseter became the CEO of Walt Disney Animation Studios. This is long before other issues that arose. And Disney cancelled all future direct-to-DVD sequels in 2007. But right, okay. it's not a bad idea, right? Isn't the classic case of a movie, careful what you wish for? Pinocchio wished to hey, be true. a boy. He now is a boy. End of Pinocchio. David wishes to be a boy. He doesn't quite become that. He gets his mum back and thus becomes more human. The sequel then becomes you deal with all the hardships of the thing that you wanted so long. And the theme is careful what you wish for. So, oh, and this is how we can get him having cancer in. Excellent. So, the case becomes like a Will Smith it's like series. The fault film. in our stars. Oh, fantastic. One of those YA things. So oh, actually, that's not bad. Robots and YA. No, what happens is a teenage girl falls in love with him, right? Or a kid. Right. So, it's basically that film with Macaulay Culkin. My girl? My girl. It's my uh, girl. It turns out meets Pinocchio, robots? meets artificial intelligence. That's our film. 
a human girl falls in love with a human bo- a robot human boy, but he gets <laughs> cancer and is dying, and thus <laughs> she learns, and he he wishes that he could live on indefinitely, and be a robot again, but he can't. Or maybe he does by the end of the film become a robot again to survive, <laughs> yeah. right? To survive, he becomes an android to survive because they've got to replace so much in his body because he's had a particularly terrible disease like, you know, cancer or right. something. And right. so he becomes a robot at the end and lives, but now he has to accept that he will outlive her. And we're back right. to square one. Ah, ready for AA part <laughs> three. three. What do you think? Is that our pitch? Sure, sure. It's got everything. It's Nicholas Sparks with robots and ev- the whole lot. And what are we calling it? What's the title? Well, didn't we already come up with the title? Isn't it I, but just less I? Right, okay. I feel like we're in, in fault in our stars territory here, so maybe there's a riff on that. How about still artificial intelligence or artificial emotional intelligence? Hey, hey. Horrible. Maybe this can just be called Untitled AI Sequel for now. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to AI Artificial Intelligence. Gold. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? There'll be much tweets about Robot Williams' big old butt on Twitter. At Gabe Dowrick. So, if you want to get any robot butts that you can't deny, you'll oh. find Gabe there. You can find yeah. me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at, at Ben Phelps. And YouTube is youtube.com forward slash Ben Phelps, where you can find all my podcasts, including twin movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening, folks. We always appreciate it. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy it, Please leave a review. That's a way that people can find the show. Please leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And please share it on social media. Otherwise, it's very, very hard amongst the tsunami of podcasts for people to discover a show such as ours. So please spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. All right. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Battle movie very soon. Adios, Gabe. Goodbye. Goodbye.